The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. It's time now to uh, open up our Bibles. Let me encourage you to open up with me to the book of 2 Timothy and chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. We are uh, well into our uh, fall sermon series reverence and awe, where we are looking at uh, elements of Christian worship, why we do what we do, what it's all about, uh, what they mean. Uh, all those different things are what we're looking at in this uh, series of sermons on Christian worship, on reverence and awe. And this is, uh, this is important for us as we get a, a deeper understanding about what it is that we're doing when we gather for worship and, and what God is doing amongst us as he gathers us together. So we want to be sure to understand more of these things. And this morning, as we look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, and if you haven't found that yet, it's on page 996 of your pew Bible, and you'll want to follow along with us. Uh, this morning, we are particularly looking at the subject of uh, preaching. Preaching, this, this element that's fixed in the middle of our worship services, uh, this, this element that is perhaps most likely to garnish uh, whatever discussion or conversation following a worship service, uh, raising uh, critiques, reviews, feedbacks, comments of uh, a full stream of them perhaps. But uh, we want to think a little bit uh, more highly about uh, preaching this morning, particularly what does God intend to do during preaching and what is this for? Uh, is preaching merely an exercise where the pastor gets to wax eloquent on a topic of his choosing, or is there something much more significant happening here? And I would like to encourage you to think highly of preaching this morning. But before we actually look at this text, I want to just share with you briefly that last weekend at the Presbytery Gathering in Moline, there were three men who stood to become candidates for the ministry, meaning that they are at the very, very beginning stages of figuring out a call to ministry where they want to go into full-time pastoral ministry. And this phase is called candidacy, and they'll be a candidate for ordination for about a year. Uh, but a big part of candidacy is coming before the presbytery and uh, proclaiming that they want to do this and then agreeing to submit to a process where after walking through that process, they can be affirmed as someone who is qualified to be ordained. But one of the best parts of this whole candidacy business is after they introduce themselves and explain their calling and answer a few vows and promises to the presbytery, uh, they have one of the more seasoned ministers in the presbytery come forward to give a charge to the new candidates. And uh, it was my responsibility to assign the person to give the charge, and the, the person that I chose was someone I deeply respect, many years in the ministry. Uh, he was here one time, Derek Morrison, maybe some of you remember him. He stood to give a charge to these three candidates. He was that guy with that great Scottish accent. Maybe you'll remember that. Um, Derek Morrison stood to give a charge, and I told him to give a, you know, a five to ten minute charge, and being a preacher, he went on the you know, longer end of the charge. But it was great. It was fantastic because he got to stand on the, the closing end of his ministry to address three men who were at the beginning and dispense and charge to them this beginning stage of ministry. It was, uh, it was wonderful. And something like that, something like that that Derek was doing for those three men is similar to what 
Paul is doing here to Timothy in 2 Timothy, except for the fact that when Paul is writing, he is speaking the inspired word of God as he's writing the scriptures down. So it is, it is far above what Derek Morrison was doing as he was charging these new ordination candidates, but it was similar because here Paul is charging Timothy. Now just very quickly, just some background information because I know we're jumping in towards the end of this book, just some context here. Uh, Timothy is Paul's disciple, would have traveled with him, uh, been a partner in ministry along with Paul for many, many years. And Timothy, as a young man, is now separated from Paul, and Paul is writing to Timothy as Timothy ministers a new, to a new congregation in Ephesus. Remember Ephesus, the letter of Ephesians is written to the church at Ephesus, and Timothy is actually the pastor of one of those churches in Ephesus, and Paul is writing with some counsel, some advice. He is literally handing off the baton from one generation to the other to say, young man, it's your turn. And here's what you must know. And it is that context that Paul writes our section that we're going to reading about from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Young Timothy, Paul's disciple, now on his own in pastoral ministry, being urged to stand firm with what must be done. And so hearing that, let us pray and hear God's word. Our great God, what a, what a wonderful privilege it is to be together we ask now that as we have your word open before us, that you would transform us through that word and that you would speak now in the power of the spirit through this word, and that you would rest upon our hearts with correction and comfort and counsel to be strengthened in our identity as Christian people. And so be amongst us in a powerful way to illuminate our minds, give understanding and change our hearts, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. And now hear the word of God from 2 Timothy in chapter 4, from verse 1 through verse 5. This is the word of God. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. And so let's continue to hear it here in 2 Timothy and chapter 4 as we think about this thing we call preaching. Now, it might seem strange to have 
a, uh, a sermon about preaching. Preaching about preaching inherently might seem somewhat strange, but actually I think it's good for us to step back and rethink what it is that we do. You know, this is a, uh, an important feature of our Lord's Day worship services. What is happening? Why does it matter? And a big question that I think we need to be asking, because it's certainly the question that the larger culture around us is asking, is, is this relevant anymore? Preaching. One-way communication. Authoritative declarations. Is that an element that falls kindly to the wisdom of the age? Now, many people consider that preaching as a medium of communication, preaching itself as a medium of communication is both ineffective and out of date in our world today for at least three reasons. In a culture that is inherently anti-authority, authoritative communication doesn't rest well on the ears of a culture that is built upon anti-authority, people who don't like being told what to do. And inherent in the idea of preaching is an authoritative communication from an authority source, God himself mediated through his word and then a person who stands to preach itself. But if we come against this notion of anti-authority, then we will attempt to remove all the aspects of authoritative nature of communication, which is why you see a trend in churches where the pulpit goes away. And the pulpit gets put to the side or in the back. And what ends up happening is the preacher will come out front and just kind of, you know, dialogue with you. When, when the minister stands in, in front or perhaps on the level of the congregation, there is an inherent nonverbal communication that we're just, we're just talking here. We're having a dialogue. The visual element that was restored, especially during the time of the Reformation, was a fixed pulpit that communicated in a nonverbal way an authoritative communication, a word from an authority source, and a culture that is uh, hinged on anti-authority doesn't come up well against an idea of authoritative communication where people say, don't tell me what to do. But not only is anti-authority an issue that we face, we are also a culture that is media-saturated, where oral communication is not the most prized form of communication. Ask anybody in media and marketing, what drives is pictures and videos, and if you're gonna talk, it's gotta be brief. It's gotta be, it's gotta be tweetable, it's gotta be quick. 30-minute sermons don't go well with people with short attention spans who are so inclined to be media-saturated that they would rather watch a video than listen to someone speak for an extended period of time. Now, full confession here to you, it was 9 o'clock this morning because the new operating system on the iPhone now tells you and gives you a report of your screen time. I'm sitting at my desk looking over my notes as my iPhone reports to me that I spent... Four hours and 32 minutes looking at my screen in the past week. Okay, confession. Right? A media saturated. We're used to looking at images and screens and videos, and verbal communication is a reality that we are bad listeners as media saturated people. 
And the worst condemnation about it, the fact that my phone buzzed, so I looked at it as it told me how much I looked at my phone, right? It's very self-condemning. We are a media-saturated culture. Thirdly, we are a culture that is inherently increasingly secular. Where we have lost our confidence that this old book has anything relevant to say to us in a modern world. And these are all challenges inherent to this thing that we call preaching, where we are an anti-authority, media-saturated, increasingly secular age, where we have doubts about the relevance of the divine authority of the Bible itself, which leads then to preaching, not from the Bible, but from, you know, bestseller lists and journals and books and articles and things like that, things that connect more. There's a real challenge in this thing that we call preaching. But notice, notice what Paul says to young Timothy at the beginning of his ministry. Notice he charges him in verse 1. And you might not be charged very often, but if you've attended a graduation or commencement ceremony, you know, there's someone giving a charge, someone giving a challenge, someone giving a, a word that says to the people, rise to this occasion. And here is Paul saying to Timothy, Listen to this charge. If you think of a more serious one, I can't possibly imagine. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and as his kingdom. All these things, Timothy, I am charging you in the name of the reality of the kingdom of God on earth and its appearing by virtue of the resurrected Christ. All these things. This is quite a charge. Saying to him, now I charge you on this basis, Timothy, if you want to be faithful, if you want your ministry to bring glory to God, if you want it to count for the purposes of the kingdom, this is what you must do. This is the one element that is uh, irreplaceable in terms of Christian ministry. Very clearly, verse 2, preach the word. If you want to be faithful, Timothy, this is what you must do. Preach the word. If you want Christ to be born by you in an honorable way, preach the word. Preach the word, verse 2. Now, when Paul instructs Timothy about this, uh, preach the word, uh, there are actually several different words that the New Testament uses to describe this, this action of preaching. Uh, other times it uses words that we translate as proclamation or exhortation or teaching or preaching. These are, these are different words that are somewhat synonymous to the idea of preaching itself. But, but the word that Paul uses here in verse 2, when he tells Timothy, preach, it's this very distinct word that we would actually identify very well with this idea of crying out. Crying aloud, proclaiming, declaring, and announcing. Okay? It would be like the town crier who comes to the village saying, Hear ye, hear ye, all ye people. The king has sent me to you. And this is a message that you must hear. It comes from him. I'm here in his name. The king has issued clemency to all his subjects who owe him a debt. He's going to pay off all of their debts and consider them well standing in his sight because the prince has died. The town crier element of preaching where we come with proclamation, that's the idea behind this word preach. Preaching has always been the central feature of God's people gathered together for worship. 
If you want to do some flipping, you can flip briefly with me. In the Old Testament, in the book of Nehemiah, this, this biblical precedent for uh, explaining the scriptures in public worship where the scriptures are open, read, and explained, this has always been done in, in Christian gatherings. In the book of Nehemiah and chapter 8, uh, the people are in the process of rebuilding as they've come back into the land, and there is this element of restoration and reformation. The people want to be faithful after a season where they had struggled and failed and not been faithful. They are, they are coming to this place of saying, if we want to be faithful to God again, we must do these things. And in Nehemiah chapter 8 in verse 6 it says that Ezra blessed the Lord the great God and all the people answered amen and amen lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground so you have this element of the corporate gathering of God's people gathered for worship to sing to to bow down to give praise to God and it says that the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places and they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So very, very simply, what you have here is the gathering of worship, where there is this element where the law of God, the book of God, the word of God is, is opened up, is read, and then it says that it gave the people sense so that the people understood the reading. So there's the reading of the law, but there is also those who are appointed to give sense to and help bring understanding to. And it was in this context of worship where the Bible was read and explained. Preaching. It's a simple concept. Still in the New Testament, in the book of Luke, we find Jesus following this same pattern where Jesus goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, Jesus goes into the synagogue for the very purpose of reading from the prophet Isaiah. And when he does this in Luke chapter 4, he is reading about a prophecy about the Messiah's own coming. And Jesus is, of course, the Messiah. But it says in Luke chapter 4 verse 21 that Jesus read the scriptures and then sat down to explain the scriptures to the people, saying to them, Luke 4, 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Where he says to them, what I just read to you was talking about me. And here I am. The Messiah has come to you. This is the, the pattern of synagogue worship. The word read and then an interpretation given and an application given. This has true for you. And so there is not just the unfolding and the reading. There is the application as well. This is what this means for you. Also in the book of Acts, one more illustration in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, Paul does the same thing. Acts chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. Paul goes to the synagogue at Antioch. And in Acts chapter 13 and verse 14, it says that on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. We read the word. If you've got something to, to say to teach about that, go ahead and do it. And Paul stands up and he preaches in verses 16 through 31. So all that to say that the, the, the pattern of gathered worship among God's people has always had as a center feature the proclamation of the word. That's why preaching is such a central act in Christian worship. 
Now think about it this way, perhaps, if you want to maybe take a 30,000-foot view of our worship services. I hope you understand that every single element of the worship service is intentionally designed to accomplish something or communicate something. There's, there's, no, there's no frivolous action in the liturgy of the Lord's Day worship. Everything is intended. And one of the most helpful ways to think about this pattern is that the things that we do in our worship service before the sermon prepare us to hear the word from God. And everything that we do after the sermon is in response to the word that has been heard. And so there is this way in which the the worship service looks toward the proclamation of the word in preaching as the central act of Christian worship, which is why we value it so highly, which is why it is to be esteemed in this way. So the question is that I think we can draw out of this text and what Paul is saying here, and uh, of course in this series of sermons we're doing reverence and all, these are topical type sermons where we're addressing topics per se, but we can pull out of this text some very significant realities as we ask the question very basically, and I hope that these are things that you think about or have thought about or will think about that you should care about. What should Christian preaching look like? I mean, what what do you expect when you sit down? And I open the book and then I start to talk him. What what is this for? You know, quickly, it's not my intention to entertain you. There are people in your life who are a lot funnier than I am, who are more interesting than I am, who are well better suited to do all those things for you. That's not what preaching is for. What should Christian preaching look like? I think just maybe three things that we should make commitments to about this that come out of this text. And at some point you're going to say, you know, that's too obvious. Well, it should, it should be quite obvious. Number one, Christian preaching should be, you ready for the most obvious answer in the world? Biblical. Christian preaching should be Biblical. Now, you would think that that should go without saying. But the assumption about this point is actually one of the most dangerous realities in preaching. Because things that pass for preaching that are not biblical are dangerous in the church. Christian preaching should be biblical. Look back in chapter 3, actually, in verse 16. Paul just finished in the course of 2 Timothy saying to him in verse 16, chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness. This is what the Bible is for. It's divinely inspired. It's the word of God. It's your only source of authority for faith and practice in your ministry, Timothy. And the people of God need to hear it. And so what you must do is preach this word. And the word here is that which is Again, verse 16, breathed out by God. You realize, of course, that the Bible is a divine word, living and active from the mouth of God. It's not like any other book. It is divinely inspired. And Paul says that is the subject of your ministry, the word of God, not the newspaper, not current events. You don't need political commentary from me. You can get it all week long somewhere else. And in fact, you probably have too much of it. What we need is, Paul says, the word of God. Preach this word. Preaching is for the lifting up and the exaltation of God's word. In the Old Testament, one of the threats that God made to his people is that if they were to forsake them, 
if they were to forsake him, Amos chapter 8 says that God would bring a famine upon the land. Not a famine of food, but a famine of hearing the word of God. When the word of God is not preached inside of Christian churches, it is the judgment of God upon that church. It's a very serious point. When God's word is forsaken in his house, it is a judgment upon the people. A famine is brought to the land. But when the Bible is faithfully preached, God is speaking to his people. God is sealing the promises of Christ to his people's hearts and building up their confidence and helping them and giving them encouragement and meeting them in their griefs and their sorrows and all these ways God speaks in the Bible. Paul says to Timothy, preach the Bible. The most obvious point in the world. Christian preaching should be biblical. Secondly, Christian preaching should be Christ-centered. Christian preaching should be Christ-centered. The word that Paul charges Timothy to teach is the word of Christ. Of course, we're introduced to Jesus as the word of God from John chapter 1. But the substance of preaching the word is the preaching of Christ. You cannot preach the word and not preach Christ. And the dangerous caution here is that there is a way in which to take the Bible and make it just a bunch of moral teachings and stories absent of a savior where you end up with a moralistic religion of do better, feel better, all the rest with no savior. Is it possible to preach the Bible and not preach Christ? Unfortunately, it's dangerously possible. So we must preach Christ. In fact, when you think about the Lord Jesus in one of the best resurrection narratives from Luke chapter 24, Jesus has been resurrected and he's walking on the road with the disciples and they don't know that it's him and they're sad and they said, uh, you know, the bad things have happened here. The person that we put our hope in, he died and that's it. Our hopes are dashed and Jesus says, you don't, you don't know what was promised? And at this time, again, they didn't know it was him. And Jesus, it says, opened up the scriptures and explained the scriptures concerning all things about himself. Where Jesus has an Old Testament Bible study with these two disciples and basically says, let me tell you the story of the Old Testament. The story of the Old Testament is the story of a Savior who has been promised. That Savior has come. And later on, their eyes were opened to realize that was him. But Jesus is able to literally walk through the Old Testament and say, here's where this stands in relationship to the promise of me. Are the Old Testament scriptures Christian scriptures? You bet. Can you preach Christ from the Old Testament? Absolutely. The way we preach the Bible in a Christ-centered way is showing where every text or every theme or every book leads us to Christ whether in a way of promise or in a way of fulfillment. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher in London, said that there is no road to any hamlet in all of England that cannot make its way to London. And there is no text in the Bible that can't be made its way to Christ. Everything stands in relationship to Jesus. No matter what text we're preaching, we should be preaching Christ. In fact, that same preacher, Spurgeon, he ran a preacher's college, and uh, he would have people come. And uh, it reminds me of seminary classes where people are preaching for the first time. It's really hard. It can be kind of embarrassing, but, you know, that's where you learn. Uh, but Charles Spurgeon said to a man who got done preaching, 
a, a sermon that could have been preached in any mosque or synagogue without offense. And he said to him, young man, there was no Christ in your sermon. And until you learn to preach Christ, you ought never to preach again. We preach Christ or there's nothing to preach. And the simple point in that is the people of God can never have enough of their Savior. You will never reach a point where you say, okay, enough about Jesus. But when we realize as the people of God that this is what we need, we identify with that, that old hymn writer, right? Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and His glory, of Jesus and His love. Tell me the old story. Christian preaching must be Christ-centered. And third, and this is a, a point that is uh, relevant beneath what Paul is saying here, Christian preaching is to be, and here's a, here's a word that we sometimes hear, but uh, maybe not all the time, Christian preaching is to be expositional. Expositional. Meaning that when the sermon is preached and Paul tells Timothy, preach the word, he intends that it is the word itself that is to be communicated. And the very simple way of explaining this is to say that the point of the sermon, okay, and this is always a fascinating conversation where you try to say, what was the point of that, right? And you walk out and sitting at lunch or sitting in the parking lot in your car Sunday afternoon, what in the world was the point, okay? Hopefully. <laughs> the point of the sermon is the point of the text, the point of the sermon is the point of the text, as if to say that the Bible is used not as a springboard to get into other topics that I'd rather talk about, but it leads us deeper into the text and that what the Bible is saying is the main thrust of the sermon rather than using that and going off and saying something else. Letting the Bible speak for itself, beginning with the text and asking, what does this say? And unpacking and illuminating it so that through the Holy Spirit it rests on our hearts. Not me sitting in my office and saying, you know, I want to talk about this, so I need to hunt and peck and find a text to justify it. That's the wrong way. Biblical preaching is expositional preaching. It would, it's much like a, a symphony. The composer has authored the symphony. It's masterfully done. The conductor is tasked to execute the symphony as it has been written, rather than infringe upon it and change it. And when the music is played, it, it sings in glorious harmony and it's composition together. And just like in preaching, it is to allow the Bible to speak for itself, rather than impose upon the text the ideas or the opinions of a person. That's not biblical preaching. Biblical preaching lets the text speak for itself. Now what this does, why we should care about this, is that Christian preaching will do a number of things. It will inform the mind. Yes, it, it, it's, it's full of education and teaching. It, we're told to renew our mind and we're supposed to lean into the true knowledge of Christ. But it is also supposed to, to move the 18 inches from the head to the heart because preaching is also supposed to connect and, and move and, and do in this in such a way that the Spirit applies the text. 
Preach the word, Paul says, so that the word that is divinely inspired might rest upon the people's hearts and transform and make a difference and bring faith and encourage and nourish faith. So just quickly then, three encouragements, I think. Not just to me, although this is directly relevant, but also to all of us, the Christian Christian people, the Christian church, the kind of worship that we want to have. Why should we care about this? Why should we be reflective about this? I think a couple encouragements here are that one, just as Timothy was encouraged to be a patient preacher, notice where he says that? End of verse 2, complete patience. Just as Timothy was encouraged to be a patient preacher, it is incumbent upon the people of God to be patient listeners. Patient listeners. I've got four or five copies of this little book here in the office, and it's called How to Listen to a Sermon. It's a great little book. Patient listeners. Paul says great patience. Now, he's talking to Timothy and saying, respect the capacities of your listeners. It's wisdom for a preacher, right? Know when to stop, right? <laughs> Land the plane, as it were, right? From time to time, okay? But respect the capacities of your listeners. But it's also, I think, an ap- application of responsible listening in the sense that there will be things in a sermon that will go over your head. And there will be elements of a sermon that you think fall too low to the ground near your feet. Attending to biblical preaching faithfully, listening to biblical preaching faithfully, considers and holds in mind the fact that biblical preaching is not a private event. We are gathered together as the people of God, a public act. It considers the whole congregation. So when something in the sermon reaches above you, humble yourself and remember that there is room for you to grow in your understanding. And be thankful that there are people gathered together who are able to grasp what has sailed over your head. Likewise, if you find that there is substance that is beneath your capacity and you say, oh, I get that, you know, remember this same basic principle to be thankful that there are other people gathered here and it is coming exactly at the level that they need, and you need to remember elementary principles and be strengthened in them. Attending patiently to biblical preaching means that whether it goes above you, hits you square in the eyes, or falls beneath your feet, it still matters for you. This is very important. Secondly, just as we listen with patience, we should also listen with discernment. Notice the warning from verses 3 and 4. Paul says to Timothy, the time's coming when people won't endure sound teaching. They're going to accumulate for themselves people who are going to say whatever it is they want to hear, and they're going to flock to them, and they're going to run from you because you're preaching the word, and they don't want to hear that. They want to be told something else, and they're going to go and find the person who's going to tell them what they want to hear. Has this happened throughout history? Yes. Does this still happen today? Yes. And on its surface, that's an important issue and that bears significance. But there's also something else here, I think. Uh, I think this is more than just about flocking to some other source. The, the, the motivation to flock to some other source, some teacher who's just going to scratch your ears and tell you everything that you want to hear, doesn't begin with the running away from biblical preaching. It actually begins with the inclination that what the Bible says here is a subject that I am exempt from. And so therefore, I don't need to listen. 
And so what ends up with running away to false teachers to scratch your ears actually begins with the presumption that I don't need to hear this. No matter what the topic is. But the sure pathway to lies and myths begins with this inclination that the Bible is not necessary for us. We listen with patience, we listen with discernment, and finally, we listen with anticipation. Listen with anticipation. Paul says that this word that Timothy is going to preach is going to do a lot of things in verse 2. It's going to reprove, it's going to rebuke, it's going to exhort. This teaching is going, to, is going to have multifaceted applications in the life of the people of God, but it's going to be doing something. Remember the book of Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It does something when it comes out and it inflicts upon us sometimes wounds, other times the bomb of comfort, but it, it affects us. But the point is here is that Christian preaching is, in our tradition, we call it a means of grace where God intends to grow and strengthen and bolster your faith through the proclamation of the word. Or as Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 10, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That word of Christ is the the gospel of God and when it is proclaimed, faith is being uh, grafted into the, the hearts of dead people and they're being made alive. And those who have been made alive by the word of God are being further strengthened and helped and built up and nourished and encouraged with that same word. The one word that goes out is having a multiple effects upon the people as they're gathered together. The Lord gives his people continued faith and nourishment as they continually learn to trust him and his promises. This is what helps you grow in your Christian life. And so to attend to biblical preaching faithfully is to listen with anticipation of what God is going to say to you to his word, expecting that he will speak to you when you attend faithfully. And it's like this. I use this picture all the time. There are meals that you have eaten in your life that especially stand out in your memory. Special occasions, special meals. But by and large, you don't remember all the food that you have ever eaten in your life. Likewise, it may be the case that a sermon or two throughout the course of your life falls upon your memory, but it's likely that you forget everything that's said. Nevertheless, you were still fed. Just because you don't remember the meal doesn't mean you weren't nourished. And God, over the course of your lifetime as a Christian believer, is steadily and slowly feeding you and nourishing you and encouraging you with the substance of the Word of God to grow your faith. The secret to growth in the Christian life is no secret. It's just regular receiving the meal both in its audible form and in the other form that it comes in as well. This is the substance of Christian preaching. And by God's grace, we intend to be a church where that is upheld. But that only comes because of God's grace sustaining the preaching ministry of His Word. You as a people should insist on these things absolutely insist and we as the session of your church should absolutely insist to provide these things to you 
even if you don't want it on certain days or on certain topics. This is what it means to love one another in Christ when it comes to preaching. And by God's grace, may we be a place that does this faithfully for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word and we thank you for the direction to proclaim it. We pray, Lord, that you would give to us a love of your word that would result in a love of the proclamation of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow and be a congregation that is even more faithful, even more maturing, even more like Christ in ways that we hold to these principles. Help us, Lord. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.